Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts, Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and Peter Tursteg. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Cindy. Hey, Cindy. So recently I went to the O'Reilly Security Conference, and they challenged us with new ways of thinking. And also the other day, I came across a cybersecurity study from CIOs where 80% of them said that inadequate funding is one of the top barriers to addressing their cybersecurity threats. And over the years, based on readings and interviews I've done and conferences, the bottom line is, is that unless it impacts a company's financials, security ends up being an afterthought. And so I thought it'd be interesting for us to present a case for why our departments should get raises and, and also look inside ourselves and, and being realistic with what we're faced with. So let's start with uh, what we're up against. At the O'Reilly conference, I really liked this one slide. Her name is Becky Bass. She kept saying over and over again that she's old and she's grumpy and she's been doing this forever and she really cares about security. And so I've heard so many times security pros saying that and they're tired, they're doing really important things, but they're not getting enough credit for it. And so she showed us the constant cycle that we have a new feature, there's vulnerabilities in an attack, we do damage control, then we diagnose and patch. Then just when we feel like we have things under control, we learn about smarter attacks and new problems. So can you guys provide an example and experiences that you've seen of this endless cycle that Becky said in her keynote? It's a sort of scenario that sounds to me a lot like any issue we ever had in the past with, say, you know, viruses getting into your environment. Obviously, there's going to be new variations, new versions of them, different methodologies of attack, and you're always trying to catch up with the latest and greatest that's out there. I think that's always going to be the case. There's always going to be people who are putting so much work into finding new ways into your environment, finding new ways to, to cause damage, to take data, to capitalize on it. This is absolutely how it works. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have a specific use case or a specific story from my past, but I definitely identify with this. Uh, I've definitely heard this is, this is how things absolutely work. Killian, when you're talking to customers, does it sound like the same kind of cycle and fears that they have? What are some of the stories or general stories that you get from? So absolutely. I do have a story that kind of relates to it very directly. Um, this is from, from previous in my career. And we're actually working on deploying a new security technology because we were constantly facing challenges uh, in the environment. So we rolled out this brand new security technology to cut the time to respond, to get um, the endpoints updated and things like that, to make sure that we were always as protected as possible, as fast as possible. And the funny thing that happened was during this process, the vendor that we were dealing with actually um, released a bad product patch, which did way more damage to our systems than the actual things we were protecting against. So what ended up happening then was we had to go roll back and put in a delay into the, uh, the update cycle there you know, for fear that it might happen again. And the net result of that was now we were seeing the rate of problems increase again that we were trying to solve. So we were in this constant battle of saying, hey, listen, we need to get this information, this protection out there as fast as possible, but you know, how much damage could it be if something went wrong again? 
So it was this sort of very cyclic argument that would happen every so often. Something bad would happen because we weren't protected as fast as possible. So then we'd increase the life cycle, but then there'd still be a lot of fear and resistance um, based on some of those bad product patches. So it's a very real fear, and it's two sort of opposing forces constantly locked in struggle. <laughs> I think with security, you can always be 100% certain that it's not going to go as planned. It's a, it's a fact of life, just dealing with so many variables and so many moving parts. It's really about telling a good story, though, I think. People are a lot more accepting of some of this if they understand the how and why you're doing something, as opposed to the very draconian, like, this is what we're doing, and you're going to like it because reasons. You know, you, you just need to involve them in the conversation. Like, this is going to help you. This is going to help you be more productive. This is going to help. Think about it this way. You know, if, if your laptop goes down, infection or whatever happens, how much is that going to impact your life or, you know, your productivity? If you can't use your laptop for, you know, a day or a week while it's being refreshed versus, you know, maybe a minor inconvenience of an hour or two if, you know, the system's updating, something like that to protect it. I think that's a common problem that actually one of the speakers, her name is Heather Adkins. She's a director of InfoSec and Privacy at Google, and that was one of the stories she presented and prompted us to think about there. That was one of the stories of you're working really hard, but you're never prepared and that you can take a nap and then wake up and then your life will never be the same again. Or if there are new innovations that are happening and you're just setting the password as default and then expecting the user will change uh, the password later or there's no IT budget and then you try to develop the best security and then you realize that maybe you haven't checked your security and then your company's intellectual property has been stolen. She shared some of these stories, and I think it's also the Internet of Things, too, that will have a lot of problems in the future. Can you guys talk about some of the new problems that the new innovations of the Internet of Things might bring? Sure. I'll jump right in. I remember I actually woke up this morning and I was uh, flipping through Facebook and one of the first things I saw was a uh, video that actually scared the heck out of me. Uh, it was um, from The Verge, actually, and they mentioned a drone that somebody had outfitted with traditional hardware to use the Zigbee protocol, which is used for wireless home automation. And what it did is it just flew it around, I guess, an apartment complex and flew it up to next to someone's window and they were able to turn their lights on and off at will and it looked just completely just freaky. It was weird to see these red lights going off in this person's apartment. And it's it's weird because the Internet of Things, you think about it a lot of times as, you know, some random stranger across the Internet could, you know, go and try and cause, you know, havoc or, or either hack into your device to use as a botnet or, you know, just, you know, mess with you a little bit. But the fact that someone can just fly a drone up, you know, and use that protocol to, to hack into a device that was, you know, not properly secured, the possibilities are endless in that sense and from vectors that I never would have expected. So... I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that if these devices are out there, they're properly secured, that these, these protocols are properly designed. They, obviously, st someone turning lights on and off in an apartment is not nearly as bad as someone getting into your, your home network and, and finding your credit card number. But the potential for more than just data theft, but actually the manipulation of people's lives is, is a new idea I hadn't thought of. Uh, I think it scares the heck out of me. 
From my perspective, Chris, I think you're entirely right. What we have to learn to live with, though, is the fact that people want these new and awesome functions, and the people who want them are not necessarily security people or even IT people or anybody who thinks about this stuff. So we have to just automatically assume that everything's compromised all the time, regardless. It's kind of like walking around with your head on fire all the time. <laughs> it's a terrible way to look at life, but it's true. Is that what happened? <laughs> but if you think about it, being in security, you just have to assume that everyone's going to walk in your front door with a compromised device, just as a free you know, welcome mat for anybody who feels like it, be it a target attacker or somebody just looking for the lulls, as the Internet likes to say. Um, can I get into this? Can I access this? Hey, wouldn't it be fun to cause some uh, mayhem? You can't really think about networks anymore as having security, really, or a perimeter, truthfully, because all of these devices, they hook up to the Internet, they hook up to the internal network, and then what do you have? You have a, you know, a bridge or a proxy uh, inside. So she used an example of doctors who are all specialized in their fields, and so she made the analogy, well, security pros are a lot like them. How can we rethink it so that security is thought of or framed as a platform rather than a siloed solution that exists outside of each other? So can we like brainstorm what are some ways to make it happen? Because I kind of feel it's, it's true, like someone's responsible for one layer, the physical layer, another person's responsible for the network, another person's responsible for something else, how can we work together to at least be more aware of what's going on and have things work more seamlessly? I think what we're dealing with here is we actually have a little bit of a cultural or an education issue. We'll take the doctor analogy. It's, it's a perfect analogy for security. People have thought, oh, I'm going to do better. I'm going to accelerate my career. I'm going to make more money if I'm specialized in one thing. The same way, you know, doctors kind of do. And this strikes me because I was, this is maybe going back a year or two, but I was working with a customer that said they were having a really, really tough time hiring really good InfoSec generalists. They said they looked out there, they, you know, went through recruiters, they went through resumes, they kept finding people who were so overly specialized in one thing, but didn't have the kind of breadth of knowledge to to be able to function in a dynamic environment. They were not a big IT shop, so they needed people to wear a lot of hats and at least understand a number of the different concepts, if not be 100% experts. And I think that we've gotten ourselves into the habit of over-specializing a lot of things. Yeah, I can see that. It's funny, we, we mentioned the doctor analogy, and as somebody who previously thought he was going to do that, you know, <laughs> about a decade ago, I'm familiar with a concept that they refer to as grand rounds, which is basically a, a way for people who are, you know, specializing to be exposed to the different disciplines within medicine itself. I think that there's a way for people to, on the regular, who are part of security, organize some sort of method in which they're exposing themselves to the areas that they don't necessarily see every day, some sort of, you know, cross-training or cross-educational methodology. I think that would be beneficial to everyone because, I mean, obviously, you could almost think of... I don't know, security or a network, almost like an organism. You know, there's different things you have to attend to, certain, certain things that if one thing falls apart, the others suffer as well. So I think it's in everyone's best interest to to share that knowledge with each other. 
But basically what I'm trying to say is there's there's definite benefits in exposing everyone to the, the areas of security that they might not be aware of, not have as much background in. And I think it's going to benefit everyone in the long run. I think, Chris, that's a great point. I spend a lot of time on the, you know, the, at least the conference circuit, if you will, um, doing a lot of these different uh, trade shows and conferences and, and talks. And it's really useful for me as a person just just to go to these, specifically for the interaction with people. So people coming up to talk about you know, what we do, but just in hearing their different concerns, their different backgrounds, and what's most important to them. And also going around to see other vendors and see talks at these to see what kind of the industry is thinking or what different um, vendors, security you know, professionals, you know, where their head is at what their focus is. It helps me kind of break out of the mindset that, I've, that I'm in a little bit in terms of security. Just It helps me be a little bit more rounded. That's a really great segue because I know online people, they've met others on forums and they're like, oh, I'm going to Microsoft Ignite. And they're like, oh, I wish I can go. And they can't get a budget for it. They can't get their boss to sign off on it because it's expensive. And so I thought it'd be interesting to take a quick poll amongst ourselves. How afraid or excited are you to go to your boss to ask for money to fix a certain thing, to go to a conference? What if they come back and say, like, well, I gave you some money like two years ago to fix this thing. Like, now you have another thing. What is your approach if, if you're like a security person and you, and you need some money? This kind of goes back to... I think it's, it's an education thing as well, because a lot of times you're making the case to somebody who has less technical knowledge than you do. Potentially, you're the expert in that particular realm, in that particular discipline. And to have to ask for money, obviously, is it's almost like you're selling the idea to them. It makes it difficult because it's, again, a lack of knowledge on their part that probably keeps them from wanting to, to spend the money. Obviously, you know, concerns with budgets and all like that. But I think that... I mean, I've never been in the position where I have had to do this, so I may have to defer to someone else on this one. Hey, hey um, Chris, something yeah. you said that just made me think a little bit more about this is I think this mid-level management layer probably really enjoys like a beginning, a middle, and an end to a problem. And so it might be awkward or the, the thing we might be experiencing is there's no end, you know, there's no end game in this. You'll, you'll always be iterating to, to be secure. And so I think that as people understand that you'll never be finished, like there is no finish line, it'll, it'll make it easier for people to justify, you know, continued spends to, as these new, you know, vulnerabilities appear and, and not make it such a taboo topic. And I also, I went online to see how to get a raise just to get another perspective. And it says, simply putting in your time does not make you worthy of a raise, a promotion, or even a job. So like IT people, we're putting in our time, we're working hard, we're getting certified, we're on forums. And I feel like we really need to dig deep to see what we're contributing to the company's profit. And I thought it might be interesting to see uh, where all the different ways we're helping the company make or, or save money. And one of the scenarios is... Um, there is a suggestion, kind of like what the kids said, that if there are no pictures, it didn't happen. And so I think a really good idea is if we didn't measure it, then it didn't happen too. And we can figure out by using a formula of figuring out how much money you're expected to lose if you multiply the number of incidents per year 
by the potential loss per incident, and then you can justify the money that you're looking for. There's a whole lot of talk of the average cost of a data breach. Do you guys know which industry has the greatest cost if, if that record was breached? I mean, it will be one of the most regulated industries, either something dealing with healthcare or PCI compliance. You're so good, Killian. So uh, <laughs> healthcare, I think average record is 355. So that's pretty high. So when we're talking about 355, there are patient names, medical histories, credit card data, social security number. I really like this chart. I, I don't, I can't believe I missed the cost of a data breach report. I guess we've been focused on ransomware all year. This report came out in June. What are some ways have you read or know that lowers the cost of a stolen record? So I, I read the article, so I'm cheating. But I believe having an incident response plan is the biggest reduction, um, being able to prove that you have a plan uh, there. And then there are a couple others. I, I don't know the order of them. I think having a CISO is in there, too, somebody dedicated to, to paying attention to this. Those are the two ones that stick in the top of my mind. Do you think that maybe part of the problem is just the volume of unstructured data, right? So, like, how come nobody's really come up with a way that allows you to, let's say, redact the most important pieces of a document and have a better security methodology for, like, 8% of the data instead of trying to figure out what you're going to do with volumes of data? I mean, have you guys seen anybody in the business of sort of separating the most sensitive piece of a document and storing it kind of, you know, more like Fort Knox and then letting the rest of the data live in a more free form format? I know off the top of my head, there are a couple products that purport to do that. I don't have firsthand experience with them, uh, but there, there is a whole, I don't, I'm not sure if I'd call it a cottage industry, but there's a whole segment of the market that's specifically around document redaction. Well, yeah, I mean, not the specific redaction method, but more of the you know, separating the sensitive data for a, a higher higher tier of security. I just wondered if, if one of you said, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. It just came to my mind as you were talking. I don't think it's picked up. I think part of that is a lot of times organizations don't know what they are dealing with. They don't have a taxonomy to know what they really need to redact. I see that a lot, too. And I've been in conversations with, with folks about that, um, being like, hey, we need to protect stuff. And then the natural question is, cool you know, what stuff? Well, we don't know. You know, some of the PII stuff that Cindy talked about, that's kind of the, that's the easy stuff because it's identifiable. But if you get into some of the more esoteric laws and regulations, like ITAR, for example, I forget what the acronym is, the International Trade and Arms Regulation, I think. But there's all sorts of stuff that falls under ITAR from naval cannons and gun parts and even technology to a certain degree. Aerospace technology actually is a big one for that. But the question then becomes, hey, what do I need to protect? And they go, hey, I don't know. And it's hard to kind of separate some of that stuff out, I think, is, is one of the biggest problems. So there are other ways to reduce is uh, to encrypt, employee training, threat sharing, detecting data breaches early because people still have trouble figuring that out. It says in the report that it takes about 200 days to figure on out. How about cybersecurity insurance? Have you heard of customers or prospects talk about that? Yeah, so that's another one of those sort of things that seems like a great idea. I was at a conference maybe about a year, year and a half ago at this point where that was a big topic of conversation, when to invest in security and when to just buy the insurance. 
So it's, it's something a lot of organizations are looking into to help deal with some of this risk. Some of the problems, though, that they face is there's not a lot of actuarial data on how to price this. As we see more of these incidents taking place, we're getting more data, but the cat's already out of the bag at that point. There's not a lot of trend data, pattern data that they can draw off of to understand, you know, how do I price my premium? How do I price my risk? You know, what's going to be the payout structure if something happens that they have to draw from? And with the evolving nature of the threats that organizations face, it's really hard to kind of tack that down and say, hey, listen, prior experience doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be protected or know what's coming down the street next. And I think that's the struggle that a lot of organizations face uh, in the insurance industry, at least. I'd almost prefer to do business with a company that was focused on making sure their data was secure than worried about buying insurance as a fallback. That's like, you know, government-sponsored earthquake or flood insurance. Like, it's government-sponsored because the loss is guaranteed to happen. Like, there will be floods and an earthquake will happen. So no no regular carrier likes that. That's a, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, from a personal perspective, dealing with, with companies, you know, I've had, I think it got my credit card stolen from the Adobe breach and from a number of the other ones that, that happened. And that's, that's exactly it. I'd much prefer to do business with somebody who's serious about security as opposed to just looking to mitigate their risk. Yes. I was, yes, that's the nice way to say it. (laughs) Do you think doing like an ROI, figuring out the cost of a breach, thinking about insurance is going to help us get more money in our department, or we just kind of need to keep doing presentations and tell them all about the worries and help them save money? Because, you know, security is seen as more of a cost center. I have a number of feelings on this. I think it's important to put it into their terms. So terms that the business can understand and take it out of the kind of the tech realm, which is a little bit nebulous for some folks. The problem with some of the ROI and things like that is it can be a little bit of fuzzy math. And I think that's where people struggle with it. And that's why, just going back to the actuarial data, a lot of it, you have to make some assumptions. You have to kind of temper those assumptions on what's believable to the business. And good communication is key to that. You know, it's, it's all about setting expectations, really. But I, I, think it's hel- I think it helps and I think it's important. But you just have to kind of be mindful that the math is a little bit fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, I'm all, almost thinking, you know, if I had to do a presentation, I'm not sure if I want to lean towards like a financial angle or just a overall general education angle and show them, you know, it's going to happen. Be scared all the time. (laughs) At the O'Reilly conference, lots of people, they're so worried. Like they go, I know a whole bunch of IT people who go to bed every single night worried that they're going to get a call that says they're owned. And they feel like, you know, I feel like I'm going to lose every time against these bad guys. Sure. And that's it's a strong motivator. I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate that's the kind of world we live in where that fear is 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 real. But I don't know. I, I kind of have this this feeling that a lot of people who are in security have a deeper understanding of how exactly that works. And a lot of times, when you're trying to rationalize the cost of good security to other people, they just don't see it the same way. It's a, it's one of those things where you know, it's like. You hear these stories in the news about large organizations with a lot to lose and losing quite a bit from breaches, from hacks, things like that. And you often think, you know, this couldn't happen to me. They're not going to come after me. But putting it in terms of what what could actually happen to you, how things could actually affect your organization, 
often gives the necessary context to take action on this kind of thing. That's a great point, Chris. Uh, you know, what I, I always say prefacing anytime I talk to people, because that's, that's a really pervasive attitude. And it's really hard to kind of break people out of that mindset thinking, hey, it's not going to be me. But I always tell them, I said, listen, you're working at a company, you're in business because you do something, you make something, you offer something that's valuable. Somebody wants it, somebody buys it, somebody needs it. So that's why you're in business. You're in business and you're successful because you do something. And as soon as you enter that world of doing, providing, making something valuable, somebody else is going to want it for themselves. So they're either going to steal it or try and destroy reputation to gain more market share. But kind of placing it in that context, I think, really helps. They go, wait a minute. That's true. We do have competitors. We do have other people who want to maybe steal our trade secrets. You know, everything from pretty much any product you can think of. There's something that's keeping them in business, and somebody's going to want that leg up one way or another. And so let's pretend we did wonderful presentations and we got our budget. Now we're back hanging out with our team, and I really like this one article where there are 25 InfoSec gurus who admitted their mistakes and what they learned from them, and I thought it'd be fun for us to go around and share our favorites. Yeah, I'll kick this off. I, I had several. Some of them, which I will admit to have, you know, <laughs> having done in the past and learned from. One of the big ones they mentioned was uh, leaving your laptop unlocked in your office. Now, a lot of us have this idea that, you know, the office is a safe place where you should be able to, you know, freely walk around, not worry about someone else coming in, touching your laptop, abusing the rights you have upon it. And with did, your, uh, did you like those emails I sent when you walked away for lunch the other day? Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you did. No, I'll, fi I'll, fi I'll find out. I'll yeah. find out. But that's exactly the situation we're talking about here. And there, there have been people that I've, I've seen do this in the past where some people have done it as sort of a prank because they're more security minded and they want to sort of teach the lesson that you should be locking your laptop when you walk away from it. But it also does bring to light the more serious point of if somebody was interested in reading your email, forwarding it to someone, you know, um, going in and uh, reading content they shouldn't stealing files from your, your laptop or, or going on the network and grabbing something else, that possibility does exist. And again, it's one of those things where you, you assume it wouldn't happen to you, but it, it can, and it's very quick and very easy for it, to, for it to happen. You know, this whole thing is a mindset, right? Like, so when I, I'm, when I came to work here at Veronis, I couldn't believe that you had to log into the printer to get a print job. And so the first couple of days I was like, this is, there's nothing like, this is the silliest thing I've ever, I've ever heard. But the reality is, like, once you realize that a bunch of people's stuff isn't sitting on the printer and there's no, like, risk of, of secure data being left behind, you start to look at things that maybe, you know, fundamentally you say, look, I can leave my laptop unlocked or let's leave printouts on the printer. But it's really just about shoring up, you know, your exposure everywhere. Sure. The other point I really liked was using the same password for everything. Um, I was never – I... <laughs> it's the sort of thing – I've been I've been learning. I've been a lot better recently. I used to use I used to have like one password for things I didn't care about quite as much, and and then other ones were more more you know with the my bank and with PayPal and things yeah, so like that. I, I would be more secure. I, I, so but, my passwords evolved. So I originally just had an all lowercase password, mm -hmm. and then I've used the same password, added a capital letter, added some numbers, and added a special character. But yeah, I've 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 yet to diversify my password uh, portfolio. I think it's a human a human thing. It's the sort of issue where you realize there's just enough space in your brain to hold on to X number of passwords 
no matter how complex they are. And in the the article actually mentioned using a password manager, which is something I've adopted and honestly found it to be really useful because... What if it gets hacked? Uh, that's a good question. That is always a possibility as well. That was like uh, Killian's story about the endpoint updater, where when they had to slow down the endpoint updater, the value was uh, was less. You know what's funny? I had that exact same fear. So oddly Which enough, fear? for years I've been telling myself uh, about hey, I need to start doing better with passwords. And I finally got a password manager. And that was my fear for the longest time. Like, hey, what if my password manager gets compromised? That's, you know, one yeah. source of, for, for everything. It scared the heck out of me. And it did? But, no, it didn't, thankfully. Okay. There's enough controls in place. I looked at kind of the controls that each password manager offered and selected one which I liked that at least, you know, made it secure. There's enough steps involved, I think, to compromise most of these that it's probably not worth the effort unless someone's really really seriously after unless you want like uh dnc emails <laughs> right exactly yeah i just spoke with a password expert he said you pick five different words any of them and they'll never be cracked and what else did he say well then isn't it a phrase you're supposed to the yeah, five words is like a, a phrase you would easily remember or something yeah, well, nowadays um, they're also checking on your typing gate, so how many pauses you take when you're typing, which is really interesting. And also, your have you guys worked with like a financial company where they did like a voice phrase now, and then they use your voice to authenticate? My voice is my passport. Verify me. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they make you repeat a certain phrase like three times. Okay, what other what other mistakes you guys thought were um, relatable? The one I liked was uh, that all vulnerabilities take priority over the business. I've been involved in situations where it definitely feels like there's a total lack of understanding of the productivity that we're asking someone to do. Not not here, but in my past life, and that uh, and that the security you know is really the prime objective minus any work product. So. I definitely related to that one. The other one that I really liked, too, was the backup one. Just assuming that the backups are all successful because it didn't specifically tell you it wasn't. I'm a bit obsessive with, with backing things up. And that, that struck a chord with me. Uh, just I went to use a backup drive that I had put away for a while to realize it didn't work. I wasn't able to, wouldn't load. It was an external drive, and it wouldn't, the machine wouldn't recognize it, which would have been devastating, but like I said, I'm kind of obsessive about this, so I knew that I had backups in several different places, but that, you know, not taking that precaution or just assuming that it's working can be incredibly devastating when you go to call upon that and you realize that it's not there. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much, Killian, Chris, and Peter, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find some of the stories we're discussing at infosec underscore podcast if you want to subscribe to this podcast you can go to itunes and search for the inside out security show thanks and we'll meet up again next week <laughs>